Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Sarah Longwell, sitting in for Charlie Sykes, who is on a well-deserved holiday vacation. But very lucky today, my guest is Mona. I got to say, have you and I ever done just you and me? Has this ever been happened before? This has never happened. This is a first but I hope not the last. Yeah, this is amazing. Uh, yeah. You know, it's like it's like a crossover secret podcast <laughs> where we swap the the pairs. Yeah, very exciting. That's true. Well, we should explain that though for the listeners who are not Bulwark Plus members and aren't familiar with the secret podcast. We should just fill them in that you and JVL record one, and you originated this and have been doing it for what, like two years? It's OG. Two years. It's before there were subscribers. It was because people were just kindly sending us money sometimes. It felt like we should do something for them. And so we started the Amazing. Humble Secret Podcast. Which which has been terrific. And recently, Charlie and I decided that we would do our own secret pod. And uh, so now we do one on Tuesdays and you do one on Fridays and it's for members. And we have a good time. We let our hair down a little bit. We speculate. We use I don't use bad language, but every now and then Charlie does. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, that's what Sarah's referring to there with the mashup of the secret pods. And what Mona means to say is everybody should subscribe to Bulwark Plus so that they can get the secret podcast. That was the subtext, no <laughs> that's question. Right. That's right. Uh, give it give it as a gift for somebody. Okay, speaking of gifts, I'm going to work this transition. Joe Manchin, Cole. Cole in the stockings of all of his Democratic colleagues today were taping on Sunday night for a Monday morning release. And uh, it was just like a bomb went off on Twitter yeah. today. And Joe Manchin, and this is kind of wild, right? He goes on Brett Baer, who's sitting in for Chris Wallace, who has made a beeline out of Fox News recently. And so Joe Manchin goes on the show. It sounds like gives the White House maybe like a half hour heads up he's about to do this and then won't take their calls as they call him to try to talk him off the ledge. He sits down with Brett and let's listen to what he had to say. Uh, I've always said this, Brett, if I can't go home and explain it to the people of West Virginia, I can't vote for it. And I cannot vote to continue with this piece of legislation. I just can't. I've tried everything humanly possible. I can't get there. You're done. This is this is a no. This is a no. Boom. Yeah. Wow. Pulling the plug on Joe Biden's signature piece of legislation. There's a whole bunch to unpack here about what Joe Manchin's doing and what his motives might be, but but originally these two bills, the original bipartisan bill that miraculously passed with 19 Republican votes and then the build back better uh plan the the House Democrats, especially the Progressive Caucus, they wanted to run them together, and they attached to them. They were meant to go. Uh, they decoupled them to get it passed and sort of struck a deal, and Joe Manchin just blowing that deal wide open. Mona, what did you think when you saw this? As you say, there's, there are so many aspects of this. So in the beginning, the whole idea of yoking together the the social spending, which is the Build Back Better and the infrastructure spending, which was the BIF, the bi Bipartisan Infrastructure Framework, the idea was uh, that the progressives had, which I think was flawed from the beginning, was that this the yoking them together would give them leverage over 
mansion and cinema to get them to go along with the social spending bill because they so badly wanted the infrastructure bill. But that part I don't think was ever really established, that it wasn't a strong enough motivator for him to get the infrastructure bill passed to make him go along with all of these policies in the other bill that he feels people in his state do not support. And Sarah, today, just listening to the responses from Democrats, I heard Bernie Sanders, I heard Ayanna Presley, I heard a number of them go on the air and say, this is betraying the voters of West Virginia. The voters of West Virginia are going to be so angry because they are not going to be getting all the good things that were in this legislation. And, you know, you have to wonder... Do they imagine that they know what the voters of West Virginia really want better than the senator who represents that state? I mean, it's they voted the the West Virginia voters chose Donald Trump over Joe Biden by 39 points. And uh, that has always been the overriding reality. And instead of sort of confronting this reality and saying to themselves, all right, we have a 50 vote majority, but the but the only reason we have these 50 votes is that we were lucky enough to have in a deeply red state, Joe Manchin in our party. So we have to figure out what Joe Manchin will go for and then go from there. And instead, they've been trying to cram this through and trying to put pressure on Manchin. And I think what we saw today, Sarah, is that that game is over. They never had the leverage they thought they had. The voters of West Virginia have leverage over Manchin. The The other Democrats in the Congress don't. Yeah. I mean, I think Tim Miller had a great piece about yeah. this. And, and yeah, the fact is this was kind of utterly predictable. I guess sometimes I am bemused is the right word, but I'm, I'm, I'm always kind of surprised at how surprised Democrats are by the movements of Joe Manchin, who says very clearly what it is he intends to do. He said a long time ago that he was not really willing to go where these were, certainly where the progressives wanted to go, but he had all kinds of problems with the bill. And so I was, I guess, maybe sort of gobsmacked about how he chose to do it. Because by all accounts, he had gone to the White House recently, met with Joe Biden, It sounded like they were approaching something that they were going to work on in the new year for a deal. And I I can't figure out. And he goes on Fox News, which, look, I don't know what to say about that. But come on, that was that was really a a kick in the teeth. I mean, to go to do it on Fox News, don't you think? Yeah, no, I mean, it just it does sort of seem like Manchin is poking them in the eye. Yeah. And I have never been a big you know, <laughs> JVL and I argue about this all the time on the secret podcast about people switching parties. And mm-hmm. I'm constantly telling him like, that is not how these things work. No one's, no Republicans are going to go run as Democrats here, but Joe Manchin might switch parties. Yeah, like, he could. I, I am not sure that he isn't sort of angry enough. I, I don't, I, and I don't know it, but so, so look, that's one is, thing. Go ahead. Go, go, well, I was just going to say, look, um, it is possible based on the emotional reactions that we're getting from the White House and and others. I, I suppose it is possible that Manchin said things in private to them that they feel now he has betrayed. That we can't know. 
But certainly from his public posture, I mean, he does seem to be pretty consistently putting the brakes on big spending and, you know, so on. It may not be wise. I'm not passing judgment on that. I mean, you know, there are aspects of the bill that I like. There are other aspects I don't like. It's not a commentary on the merits of the legislation, but it is it is the case that that he has made very clear in his public comments that it was too much money and he wasn't comfortable with it. <laughs> and maybe, you know, the environmental stuff too might have rubbed him the wrong way being from a coal state. I don't know. Was there anything that you made of just how much he seems to want to be sticking it to them? And then also, I've been watching this with fascination today. I mean, they came out, Jen Psaki came out and and took a real shot at him. They are being very open about how betrayed they feel. And so it feels like there's kind of this, I don't know, open warfare there is. Uh, between I the mean, Democrats and, oh my and God. the White I mean, House the, and Joe Manchin. Yeah, the statement that Manchin put out was incredibly heated also, where he said, what my fellow Democrats want to do endangers the country, you know? And uh, I mean, it was very, very severe language. So yeah, this is a real devastating blow for the Democratic Party um, to be in open warfare like this. Yeah. So I've got a theory about why this happened that I want to run by you and see what you think. Okay. So here's what I think happened. I think that Joe, Joe Manchin played a major role in getting those 19 Republicans to sign on to the original bipartisan infrastructure bill. Hmm. And one of the things about these two bills being cut when they were when they were coupled together, it actually made those 19 Republicans look like chumps. Because if they were going to go ahead and put their names on a bipartisan bill, but then the Democrats were going to turn around and pass a bigger bill with mm-hmm. the BBB and just do it through reconciliation without any Republican votes, well then it sort of made the Republicans look silly for going along with it. Yeah. And so I wonder if all along, you know, Joe Manchin uh, was going to protect the Republicans. Like Mitch McConnell seemed to know, you know, like Mitch McConnell doesn't put, he voted for it. Yeah. And so I just sort of wonder if it was mm. never, or, or that, that it had to get really small for, and, and walked back considerably. And, and maybe they just weren't nearly as close on a deal as the White House thought they were. Maybe. That's an interesting theory. Um, I don't know. Um, By the way, I mean, people keep saying, JVL keeps saying that he's very old and therefore he's not going to be, he's not that interested in serving out, you know, more Senate terms. But, you know, I would refer him to Strom Thurmond, who uh, who stayed in, in office until I think he was 100. And uh, I, I think uh, Dianne Feinstein is about 150 and she's still serving. So the fact is, members of the Senate don't think of 74 as old. Um, and uh, and so he, look, I mean, Sarah, do you think that Joe Manchin would have any difficulty being reelected if he did become a Republican? Oh, his chances improve considerably. Exactly. Well, this, is, this, is, exactly. this is sort of what I, this is sort of what I mean is it feels like, look, I, it's really easy to Monday morning quarterback this stuff, but I guess there's just part of me that is looking at the mansion cinema dynamic and saying, guys, you only ever had 50 yep. and that is not a mandate. And I know you wanted a mandate to do big things. I know you wanted to talk about transformational things, but again, like you merits of the bill aside, this is not what these guys wanted to do. And so I guess I've never understood why they 
don't all sit in a room and say, I mean, so so Joe Manchin gets to dictate these things. Yeah. Let him dictate them. Exactly. I, I and like, I guess I am like mystified by the sausage making on this because it just seems like, look, you get these guys in a room, figure out what they can live with and go from there. Or conversely, you take the 19 Republican votes you got, you put that in your pocket and you move on to something, something else. Because right now, everybody's mad at Joe Manchin. And I guess I'm not sure what they think doing that is going to get them because they still need Joe Manchin if they're going to do a rules change to get voting rights. I know. And they keep saying, this is not how democracy works. It's wrong that one senator can control, you know, what 150 million people want. Well, you know what? That is the system. Sorry. I mean, that's just the way it worked. It is democracy. It is our system. Uh, You've got an evenly divided Senate, as you've said. And uh, look, I mean, that... They should have started with Manchin. I know you've been saying this for a long time. It was absolutely right. They should have started with what he would accept and gone from there. And by the way, there's another point that you've made, which I will emphasize, which is, you know, if they had pulled out the most popular aspects of this bill, like one of the problems is that they wanted to do everything. And then in order to shrink down the package's cost because of Manchin and Cinema. Instead of prioritizing and saying, okay, so we can't have all these things. We're just going to have to go with the one big thing like the child tax credit, you know, which they could have done. Instead, they made everything short term. So they figured we'll put in the daycare, we'll put in the, uh, the drugs, and we'll put in the hearing aids, and we'll put in the four-week paid leave program, and everything that we want, you know, well, not everything, but a whole bunch of things that we want, and they will expire in a year or two years. And, you know, they figure, oh, once the voters get a taste of this, the Republicans wouldn't dare, you know, vote against it. As Jonathan Chait pointed out, if all the Republicans have to do is just let it expire, you bet they would. I mean, so instead, they could have just chosen one. They could have chosen the child tax credit, which I would be my choice, and made it, you know, for the full 10 years. Um, But instead, they made everything, you know, sort of poof, go away in a cloud of smoke after a year or two in order to make the numbers work out, which was really just bad legislating and sort of, you know, anyway, just a a terrible idea. But now they have a decision to make. So this this bomb has been dropped. Um, I don't know if there's any way to, you know, salvage the situation, though I imagine that one possibility after everybody's had a chance to cool off might be, again, to do just a few things, you know, just, just pull out the child tax credit or the uh, insulin drug, you know, one of the things in the package was to make sure that people don't have to spend more than $35 uh, a vial on insulin, which is a huge problem for people who are insulin dependent, like my son. Uh, But it's also a problem for people with who my son has type one diabetes. And those people are really dependent on insulin, they will die without it. But also a lot of type two diabetics use it too. And for them, it's, um, uh, they're much more numerous in the population, and it's a big deal for them. All right, so maybe do that and the child tax credit, and not any of the rest, and and call it, you know, call it a day. Or, or as Bill Crystal suggested, you know, they they can pivot and talk about talk about COVID, make a big push on on getting testing supplies out. Uh, but we'll get to that, I guess, when we talk about what Biden's going to do on Tuesday. 
Yeah, well, you know what? No reason we can't switch it up while we've got a transition <laughs> on our hands. Uh, let's okay. talk about that. Let's let's go in. So, so Biden announces he's going to make a big speech on Tuesday about COVID. And I got to say, I think this is a really good idea. Uh, everybody knows I love to talk about my focus groups. Uh, one of the things I have heard relentlessly from the groups, especially the Democratic groups, they don't understand why Joe Biden is not out talking to people more. They feel like we have been lurching from crisis to crisis without a lot of visible leadership, hand mm -hmm. on the wheel. Here's what we're doing, why we're doing it. Yep. Um, and I think it's weird, you know, this Omicron went from, I, I don't know if it's like the first time I remember, because I remember the first time when COVID hit, kind of, I was in Vegas and you know, we'd been hearing about it for a while, but it suddenly it was hitting. And I remember being, I was there for my 40th birthday and decided not to take the second half of my trip to California for work and said, you know what, I'm just going to fly right home. It looks like this thing's getting bad. And then, you know, 10 days later, I, the office was shut down. We were all remote and we were in COVID world. And Omicron, I guess it's starting to feel a little bit like that, where we all went from, okay, this has hit South Africa. Ugh, there's another variant. But eh, we're we're gonna get boosters out there. We're vaccinated. It seems like maybe it's not as bad to then like, like you know, boom! Everybody you know has cases. I mean, I know tons of people who've got it, um, and and it suddenly it feels like it's everywhere. Yeah. So I'm glad he's making the speech because it does feel like an uncertain time. It doesn't seem like the vaccines are standing up against it as well. You're like you're best off if you're boosted. So in this moment of uncertainty, Mona, what do you hope? Joe Biden says when he yeah. gives this speech. Okay. So I have a few thoughts. Um, one is, yes, he should do a big push, a big federal push to make testing kits cheap and available everywhere around the country so that people have some method of being able to keep schools open, keep offices open and so on. I mean, if you can know in 15 minutes, whether you have it or not, that's incredibly helpful. And you can test a whole classroom of kids. If one comes down with a case, you don't have to close schools anyway. So that's very important. Bill Crystal has been hitting this theme a lot, but what Biden needs to do is to first of all, clarify for people where we are, explain to them, what does this mean? And explain that, yes, this variant is highly contagious, but it does not put us back into March, 2020 and explain why, you know, that yes, because of the vaccines and the therapeutics and the testing and all of the experience that we have had over the last almost two years now, um, we are not going to be in a situation where we have to return to lockdowns. Uh, but in order to make that even more of a reality, people need to go get boosted. And those who have not been vaccinated are going to be more likely to get sick and, and, uh, and die. And that's just, a, just the reality of where we are. What do you think? Yeah, so I've got I've got three things. One is definitely, hey, we're going to do a big push on the rapid test. They're going to be cheap. They're going to be everywhere because right now that is not the experience people are having. Right now, we ordered them in bulk a while ago, and so we've got like boxes of them, and so we can test going into anything where we're going to be indoors without masks, at least right now, mm -hmm. and and that's going to allow us to have Christmas comfortably, and like that is what you need to do. So right. number one, the tests. 
Number two, yeah, a big push to get everybody boosted. I think that, you know, there were some mixed messages early on where they kind of were saying, well, we're not sure people need the booster. Oh, now it looks no. like the booster is the only thing that is really standing up to Omicron in terms of infection. It sounds like yeah. if you've just got a two-dose regimen, uh, which I just got to say not to bore everyone with my own medical history, but I got the Johnson & Johnson. Mm -hmm. And the second they allowed us to get boosted, I went and got Pfizer because that was me the too. first thing that was available. Yep. And then I'm now I'm like, so where does that leave me? Should I should I run out and get a second? Should I go outside the law, Mona? Should I yes. go get another yes. Pfizer booster, yes. you think? Yes, Is that what you, you think? should. Yeah. Yes, I do. Uh, oh. because, because these rules are kind of ridiculous. The fact is that the J&J, according to the data I've seen, and I'm not an epidemiologist, but the J&J immunity declines, you know, pretty gradually and then suddenly after about four months, right? And so you kind of, you lose a lot of protection. And in fact, in the very beginning, when they first marketed it, they weren't sure whether it was going to need a booster or not. And, you know, for, they weren't even sure whether it was going to be a one dose or a two dose regimen. They settled on one dose. Well, anyway, the fact is you get declining immunity. So when I was about four months after my J&J, &J, I got a Pfizer, but I didn't tell them that I had the J&J. &J. I just got a Pfizer. Okay. Living dangerously. And I was living dangerously. And then when it, I mean, okay, like if they're going to come after me, they're going to come after me, but here I'm telling the whole world. <laughs> so, so then when Omicron came around, I thought, huh, so I've only had the one Pfizer. I think I'd feel a lot more comfortable having a second Pfizer. I'm in my sixties. And so I went to get it. And I, when I went to the pharmacy, she said, no, you can't have it because you had the J&J &J and you had one Pfizer. So that was your booster. You're not eligible. So I went to a different place and I got the second Pfizer. <laughs> Without, yeah, not, a, you know. not a bulletproof system we've got here <laughs> on this. Yeah, I know you're not an epidemiologist, but you know, you're just a, a respectable human. And so I'm, I'm happy to just take it, take it as gospel. Um, I will, so sorry, going back to the, and then the third thing. So the third thing that I hope he will do is urge the FDA to expeditiously approve the Pfizer pill yes. for people who get it. Yes. Look, I've always been, the FDA has always just annoyed me. And granted, I think it's good to be cautious. I think it's good to go through trials. But I don't know how much evidence they need to collect at some point. But this thing is 90% effective against hospitalization and death if you catch it early and, you you know, once you've got it. It seems like going into this cresting wave of Omicron that is going is, can evade our vaccines, like having that pill that's 90% effective would be super helpful. Yeah, um, yeah. And I so, mean, they're acting yeah. as if it's business as usual, the FDA. You know, they're not acting as if we're in the middle of a pandemic when your normal way of doing business has to adjust. You know, you have to, it's an emergency. And uh, yeah, so they, they absolutely should, should change it. By the way, can I just say a, a one word about sort of the FDA ethos, because this is a way in which I remain a, a conservative in outlook, okay? So people always talk about how it's important that the FDA protects us from bad drugs and from harmful foods and so on. And that's, that's right. That's, that's true. And they do, they do that job. But there's always a balance between perfect safety and innovation. 
And it's important where you draw the line. So people always point to the thalidomide uh, case. So thalidomide was a drug that was given to women for morning sickness, I think in the 60s, maybe late 50s, early 60s. Anyway, it was given to women, pregnant women who had severe morning sickness, and it caused terrible deformities in their in some of their babies. Terrible. And it was a real tragedy. So this happened in Europe where the drug had been approved. The FDA did not approve thalidomide. And so Americans were spared that tragedy. Okay. So people always point to this and say, see, we need a really vigilant FDA to protect us from things like that. But the fact is, if you're too tough and, and too unwilling to approve drugs, then life-saving treatments are also blocked. And so that's the balance that they have to strike. And I'm not saying it's easy, but I'm just saying it's not always the correct thing to do to say no, to say we're not going to approve it, you know, as with the case with this drug where we have a, a raging pandemic. I mean, frankly, when we were doing the, the trials for the vaccines, they wouldn't do challenge trials. You know, challenge trials are when volunteers put their hands up and say, I will take this vaccine and then I will willingly expose myself to the virus to see if it works. And people were willing to do that, but the FDA doesn't allow it. And so what that meant was it took way longer to test the vaccines than it needed to because they had to wait for people to be naturally exposed. Anyway, my I thoughts. would just like to say that I don't think I would have volunteered for that. Right. Well, I don't know if I would or not. I don't know. Uh, but anyhow, I just want to put in a word for little libertarianism there. That was for, for your Sunday. Yeah, no, <laughs> I, that's right. Um, I, and look, I'm glad we have an FDA that takes things really seriously. I, I really am. I just, I think that we have seen through the pandemic a level of caution and a level of urgency that is not necessarily commensurate with the facts on the ground in terms of what we're dealing with. And what I'd love to see from Biden is just, just that urging, not like, yeah. hey, rush this out, but hey guys, whatever you can do to move expeditiously on this would be much appreciated by a public that's about to get hammered by this new variant. Yes. So, well, I guess we'll see what he says. I, I, one thing I, I want to say that I don't think he's going to say, but I wonder what you think. I don't think he is going to call for more restrictions. Like, I would be surprised if he said anything like, and we're going to do a federal mask mandate or, you know, we're going to close schools or anything like that. I think that that is, I just think that's a place we're never going back to, that there's not a public appetite or tolerance for it. What do you think? Completely agree, 100%. I think it would be politically catastrophic for him to do that. And I also don't think it's the right thing to do. I mean, I just don't think it's necessary at this point. We have a lot more arrows in the quiver to fight this, this disease than we had back in the days when we had to resort to shutdowns. Um, but by the way, I do, I do also have to say, I, did you see what Governor Jared Polis, I think that's his name, said, the governor of, of Colorado, about yeah, this, who, guy, this guy is like quickly becoming my my 2024 Democratic <laughs> draft pick. Okay, so you did see what he? I mean, you know, he basically said, "All right, look, we have these miracle drugs available, these vaccines. If you've chosen not to take it, you are. I mean, if you look at the data, by the way, Sarah, this is me, not Paulus. But if you look at the data of who's being hospitalized with the Omicron variant." It's almost overwhelmingly the unvaccinated, practically no hospitalizations and zero deaths among people 
at least in the data that I saw. Now, of course, that can change. But anyway, we may still be early days. But it is a pandemic of the unvaccinated at this point. So what Paula said was, look, I mean, we have these miracle vaccines. And at this point, if you haven't taken it, I got to say it's your own damn fault or something along those lines. He was like, live with your choices, people. You got to live with them. Jared Polis, governor of Colorado, doing some interesting things out there, you know, and I got to say these purple state folks who figure out how to work with Republicans and talk like normal. Yeah. I mean, that is sort of where we ultimately have to land. Now, of course, there is a difference in the fact that you can spread it and you know your decisions impact other people. But the fact is, okay, so now that you can get kids vaccinated who are five and up, uh, yes, you could still say, well, you know, kids five and under can get it. That's true. Although really there is now a lot of really good data that kids that age just don't get very sick. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. I just, I think he's right that we are at a stage in the pandemic where it can, you can put it on the individual. And I think it's, it's good that he's not saying things like, you know, hospitals won't treat you or right. you know, we're, we're going to treat you with complete derision and scorn, but you will have to live with the consequences of your actions and them's the breaks folks. Yeah. That's freedom. That's, so, and that's, you know, a nice solid dose of cold reality. Yeah. Love to see it. Okay. So now that we have been taking some time talking about the Democrats. Let's turn to two of my favorite Republicans. I want to talk a little bit about the January 6th committee because Adam Kinzinger was on TV this morning, State of the Union, I believe, and he's asked about whether or not they are going after Trump criminally. Nobody, Jake, is above the law. Nobody. Not the president. He's not a king. Not former presidents. They aren't former kings. Nobody is above the law. And if the president knowingly allowed what happened on January 6th to happen, and in fact was giddy about it, um, and that violates a criminal statute, he, sh- he needs to be held accountable for that. I'm not ready to go there yet, but I sure tell you, uh, I have a lot of questions about what the president was up to. So Kinsinger's unwilling to answer the question here about whether they really are going for sort of a criminal charge against Donald Trump, but he does make it clear that what he and Liz Cheney are doing is that they are going to take their time, they are going to gather as much evidence as possible, and they are going to figure out what happened in those hours when the Capitol was being attacked, and it seems like Donald Trump was doing nothing. And to the question, Liz Cheney seems to be setting up a potential situation where what she is accusing Donald Trump of is a criminal charge, which is interfering with the Congress's business. Yes. And and so while Adam said he wasn't ready to go there yet, it does seem like things are going in that direction. What do you make of that? So I take this much more seriously as a potential criminal vulnerability uh, for Trump than anything else that I have ever heard, more than the, the porn star or all the other things that people have raised that, you eh, It's a lot of wishful thinking and a lot of... So I I wasn't convinced that Trump was really criminally vulnerable on any of those so much, especially because he has this practice and habit, like a good mafia boss, of never explicitly telling his underlings exactly what he wants them to do, but just hinting at it. And then he doesn't use email and it's very hard to nail, nail him down. So it's very interesting that Liz Cheney phrased it very carefully. She was talking about the law... And she said, did Donald Trump, through action or inaction, corruptly seek to obstruct or impede Congress's official proceeding to count electoral votes? And 
If the answer to that is yes, that is a potential criminal liability that carries a quite significant penalty. So it was like fines and then like up to 20 years up in to jail. 20 years in jail. Yes. And you know, there isn't too much doubt that because it's been adjudicated that counting the electoral college votes is an official act, official proceeding of the Congress. Some people had suggested it wasn't, but there's case law to this effect. So I look, all I can say is it's interesting. It's a measure that she is as serious as a heart attack about this and is willing to go down any path and to uh, hold him responsible and to let the American people know what happened. And I'm just dazzled by her, as I I think we discussed on our live stream the other night. Um, Yeah, you know, I haven't necessarily been watching Nancy Pelosi her whole career or my whole career and thinking, man, Nancy Pelosi is like great about X, Y, and Z. I know lots of people really love her. I, my admiration for her as a dealmaker has grown somewhat as I have been, uh, my, my cheering section has switched sides, uh, <laughs> and I'm, and I'm looking for more out of the Democrats, but I'll tell you, I'm not sure she's ever made a better move than putting Liz Cheney on the January 6th committee and Adam Kinzinger, but yes. also letting them be the faces of it. Yes. Like, like, McCarthy has done everything he can to call this a partisan witch hunt, but it's very hard when the optics are like the most intense Republican who was the third person in leadership up until a few months ago is leading the investigation. Like, it's just very difficult, I think, for him to make. And nobody remembers that he put up, you know, Jim Jordan and they then they like, you know, refused to do it uh, when Jim Jordan wasn't allowed to. Like, nobody remembers that stuff. Mm-hmm. All they know is that there's, yeah, maybe they're rhinos. Maybe they're never Trumpers. Although she's not a rhino. Just throwing that out there. But but maybe they're never Trumpers. From the it. fact is... What are you going to do? Those are Republicans and they are, I mean, she's so deliberate uh, and she's so clear. And I think Donald Trump, he put out some weird statement. I, um, you know, where he was talking about how all they want to do is put people in jail and, you know, they're so corrupt and, and they're thugs that want to put people in jail. I'm like, your chant at your little, you know, little things that you used to do was just lock her up. Like what? I don't oh, know. Yeah. And, but he sounds nervous is all I'm saying. Um, yeah, who knows? I mean, he's, he's such a damaged wreck of a human being that it's really, really hard to know what goes through that weird addled brain. So I, I don't want to speculate about that, but I would say that he ought to be concerned. Um, this is, this is very serious. And, um, and I, you know, in, in a way that I have never felt before, I I didn't feel this way about Mueller. Of course, I didn't, you know, some people said, oh, Mueller, he's going to deliver the goods, you know, he's really going to nail Trump. And I didn't know whether that was true or not. And it turned out not to be. And, you know, one thing after another, after another, but this time with this committee and all of the members deserve credit, but with Liz Cheney, this bulldog after him, I, I think he should be worried. Yeah, I'm with you that I've I've basically given up. In fact, I say it to people whenever they think like people's plans on Donald Trump and how you're going to deal with him tend to be like, oh, well, either he's going to die or he's going to go to jail. And I'm like, yeah. well, those those are not that's not a plan. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and I've been <laughs> and I've been very skeptical that the the jail scenario is happening. Like if this guy's figured out how to skate through every single one of these things. Yeah. And and honestly, I I wasn't even that bullish on the January 6th committee in general. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I wasn't either. 
you know, how much, like, it seems like people have moved on. But man, I mean, Amanda was our 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 colleague Amanda Carpenter was was hot on this right from the beginning. So she's been and she's been calling it. Uh, and and frankly, you know, Amanda is um, she showed more uh, forbearance than I because on Friday when it came out that it looks like those texts were coming from Rick Perry's phone. So there was yeah. a text. Uh, that 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 has been in evidence before. We saw it. Uh, it had originally been reported that it was from a congressman. It yes. said something to the effect of, "If you want to get really aggressive about this, uh, you should throw out all the votes from the BS states where there's challenges." So right, and this was right after the election. This was in you know like er- the early part of November, right? That's right. It was like, it, in fact, it was before the votes had been officially tallied. Right, and so what's crazy about this text message it is somebody. We thought somebody in Congress, but now they're saying it. It's CNN was reporting that it is in fact Rick Perry, former member of the cabinet, saying like, "Hey, before the votes are even called, like we should just throw this out in the swing states when there's something contested, because of course they were going to contest them." And Amanda, I think rightly, has been holding off because it's it's sort of unclear if it was his phone. You know, maybe it's a different number, whatever. Mm-hmm. But if that was from him, that is. I guess if nothing else, it just demonstrates how much in the water this was that like all the Republicans seemed to think it was going to be fine to just say, I don't know, try to send the alternate slate of electors. Let's throw these out. Let's tell the lie. Let's object to the certification, which I guess we kind of knew, but man, it is still wild to see. Exactly. And the fact is, I mean, people forget, they keep saying, well, Trump kept denying the election and and kept circulating the big lie. He didn't do it all by himself. He had his his allies in conservative media, like radio host Mark Levin was saying that that he was, you know, thundering on his show that the state legislatures had to do their patriotic duty and send alternate slates. And, you know, there were any number of other voices in right-wing media who were saying the same thing. So yeah, you're right. It was out there. It was in the water. And you know, the other thing I would just say about Perry, if it's true, I hope it's not, but if it is yet another person who you thought was a reasonably normal Republican who had some integrity, he was kind of a little bit softer on immigration than the others and he got dragged for it. And yet serving in the Trump cabinet did to him apparently what being in the orbit of Trump did to all of them, which was completely melt their brains and souls. And he was willing to say, yeah, let's let's throw out this whole Democratic experiment for the sake of Donald Trump. Yeah, I was kind of surprised to see that it was Rick Perry because it's not that it's not that I'm like a big Rick Perry fan. I just I guess I would have put him in like semi-normie Republican territory, like friends with the Bushes, not the guy who's like coming up with the proactive plan to subvert democracy. Yeah. That that wouldn't have been on my, as they say on Twitter, my bingo card. But there you have it. Okay. Mona, it has been great talking to you. Likewise. I don't usually wrap these shows. So I guess, you know, there's this instinct I have from the secret podcast. I just want to loop back and talk about Mansion some more uh, (laughs) because I'm just really blown away by all of it. But Instead, we're going to leave it there. It's been so great sitting in for Charlie today. Charlie, I hope you're having a great time. Mona, thank you for being my guest. Good luck hosting the show. And thank all of you for hanging out with us while Charlie's away. I will be here on Wednesday. Oh, okay. Well, then that's a can't miss show. Okay. Thanks, Sarah. I really enjoyed it. All right. Bye-bye.